Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss. I hope you're staying healthy, happy, and safe. We have a really big show for you today, so let's not mess around. Do you have Disney Plus? If so, you'll want to hang around to hear all about Star. That's a new general entertainment brand that's going to be inside the Disney Plus app and feature all kinds of television series, movies, there'll be some originals there, all of which are geared to make your eyeballs dance at home. That's later on. We'll also meet Josh Blaylock. He's a Chicago-based comic book artist and entrepreneur whose new company may be the most fan-friendly comic company ever. That's a bit later on. Then, Andrew Lawson, one of the Canadian animators of the Disney action-adventure film Raya and the Last Dragon, joins us. But first, we have an icon to talk about an icon. With more than 200 roles to her name, you've seen her as the geography teacher Miss Whimsy in Hairspray. She was the neighbor across the hall in Chicago, the foster mother Mrs. Hammond in Anne of Green Gables. She's been on our television screens and movie screens for almost 50 years. Jane Eastwood is a Canadian acting icon. In Jump Darling, coming now to VOD, she plays the town busybody opposite Cloris Leachman in her final starring role. Jump Darling follows the story of actor-turned-drag-queen Russell, who finds himself returning to small-town Canada to move in and look after his ailing grandmother, played by Cloris Leachman. So I began by asking Jane about working with the television and movie legend Cloris Leachman. Well, it was great because also I know Cloris. She and I did Showboat together. And um, I was her, it's called her first, I was her first cover for Parthi. And um, I was also in the, in the play. And we just had a blast. I mean, a couple of times, you know, she was going to do a movie. And so I, I went in and did the part for her. And, uh, and she offered me her driver, her apartment and everything. She was just extremely generous. She's, she's crazy. She's just a wacky gal. I'm telling She's like, everybody, everybody has a Chloris story. When we were doing uh, Showboat, I mean, she was 72 when she was doing Showboat. And that's just two years younger than I am. And she was doing cartwheels across the stage. And I remember I, I said once, oh, I think I'm getting a cold. Well, she dragged me into her room, started shoving things up my nose and down my throat and just plastering stuff on my chest just to make sure I felt better. And um, I mean, she was very bossy, but in, a, in an adorable, adorable way. And then when we had double shows, um, you know, matinees, Sunday, uh, Saturday and Wednesday, and it was grueling. And she turned her fabulously direct, um, decorated uh, dressing room into a whole buffet for us. <laughs> I you love know, that. Here is, there's the liverwurst, the tuna, the eight, make yourself a sandwich. And she did that. Now we're a giant cast too. So she did that all the time. She was very sweet. You're listening to Jane Eastwood talk about her Jump Darling co-star, the legendary Cloris Leachman. So, but we were very happy to see each other again. Um, she was she was wonderful, wonderful to be with. And she's, well, first of all, Phil told me, he said, Jane, we've got Cloris Leachman. I said, that's great, Phil. I said, be careful, she's bossy. <laughs> and and uh, she was, but Phil handled her like a champ because she would just, it's very hard to explain what Cloris is like. You know, she she has no filter, zero filter, and she has a very, very big heart. 
and we had a blast. And a couple of times in my close up, she would just like make faces at me and stick her tongue out. <laughs> <laughs> but she was wonderful. And the last thing I saw her, she took my face between her hands and told me that she loved me. So uh-huh. it was really nice. But she's well, amazing. Like she's 90. Well, first of all, she said, Jane, I'm 93 years old i said i can't believe it you look like a million dollars and um so she had to have cue cards maybe for some scenes with when i was there anyway but she would nail that take every single time you would never know in a million years she had a cue card ever you know and and she was frail too she was very frail what the hell is going on your grandmother seems to think that you've moved in i am looking after her I'm not myself, though. Sure you've noticed. Maybe I should call Mom. No, no, no. You rush over here. Take me to that place. Well, I wonder if that is just instinct or if it's just... 60 or more years of being on a on a film set. You just you absorbed that in somehow. She she I was as I was watching, I thought, man, she knows the camera. Oh my God. And remember, you know, the first scene when she saw Russell, her grandson, and she just, she almost drops it and she just said it so quietly. You know what I mean? It was like an intake of breath. Like she's a very, she's a very subtle actress, quite frankly. It's interesting because we see her uh, so often. I always think of uh, Frau Blucher from mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Young Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. You don't think of her uh, as being subtle, but you don't have a career that lasts as long as hers did uh, without being able to do everything. She may have had more of a, an opportunity for broad comedy, but that's not exactly what she's doing in this new film. Not at all. Her, I mean, her comedy was just... It was, I hate to use the word subtle again, but it was mm-hmm. subtle. And the thing is, I mean, people who are in comedy, as I am, know that that's the hardest. Comedy is the toughest. There's no doubt about it. Um, it, it. Your timing has to be exquisite. Your understanding of the situation has to be come from a very honest place. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, quite often um, people will say, if you want a great um, tragedy actor, hire a comedian. And let's talk about your character, uh, the town busybody. Oh yeah, uh, I was what, mean, wasn't I? Uh, <laughs> what what brought you in? What what attracted you to oh, her? Phil Phil asked me to do it. <laughs> he yeah. just uh, so I just yeah I thought sure right. I mean I do a lot of I'm in and out of a lot of things in mm-hmm. in, in a smaller way. I asked Colin Fiore one time about choosing his roles. Yeah, And he said, I don't choose my roles. I live in Canada. I'm an actor. I say yes, if anyone's kind enough to offer me a part. (laughs) And ditto. (laughs) Yes, I just, as a matter of fact, I just worked with Colm on a wonderful movie called Trigger Point starring Barry Pepper. And uh, Colm shot me right through the head. So that was fun. That was great. (laughs) He also- Canadian actors. We just do what, uh, we sort of just do what we're told, you know. Well, he also uh, added that if the check clears, it's a hit. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I agree. And there's another saying, I'll know it's happening once I'm at the craft service table. (laughs) You're listening to my interview with Jump Darling co-star, Jane Eastwood. (laughs) Will you call being on on a set your happy place? Yes, for sure. Why is it? I... 
I think number one, I'm half actor, half human being. <laughs> I'm not terribly successful being a human being, but I've been, a, it's always been, you know, I've been on Canadian film sets since going down the road, which was back in 1969, yeah. I guess. And that's always been the place where I've just felt the most comfortable. I love the process. I adore the process of filmmaking and I grew up with it from a fledgling, uh, film industry to you know being on like massive productions mm -hmm. that come to come to Canada like Chicago and my big fat Greek wedding and you know great and it's all it's all has the same heart really you know an indie film and a great big production it, to me it has the same heart just the love of the film going down the road it changed everything I'm from the east coast originally I remember when that came out and and it was such a sensation certainly from where I was sitting at the time and I can only imagine for you your first film this is a movie that is is heralded on both sides of the border uh, and it becomes such a big deal um what was going through your mind then did you ever expect that would happen Oh God, no, I was just thrilled to be on it. And I mean, it took, I think it took us six months to shoot it. It was on, on a shoestring, obviously Don Shabib, I think he sold his house and sold his car so he could make it. He was really dedicated to the movie. And um, the three of us who were from Eli Real's acting studio auditioned for it. It was a big open audition. And we had the style, we were immersed in the style of acting that I think that's what he was looking for almost it almost looked like a documentary. Mm -hmm. And so we were, we had been working with Eli and, and each other um, on our sort of Stanislavski acting skills. And, and so there's a, there's kind of a thing that I remember Eli used to say, he said, don't hang signs out. Don't <laughs> hang a sign out that you're angry or that you're funny or that you're mad. You have to be it. And I, that was the first time I'd ever heard that. Yeah. And sometimes I'm still guilty of hanging out the odd sign. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I like comedy. <laughs> um, and that's what I loved so much about Cloris's performance, quite frankly. It was, mm -hmm. it was, it was so interior, you know what I mean? And then it just, just came out. Whereas I felt like I was overacting a little bit in that movie. Okay. Are you still <laughs> judgmental about your work after well, more than 50 years on screen? Yeah, after, after I get over my looks and then... <laughs> I started thinking about my performance. I thought, oh God. Every once in a while, I'm happy with what I do. But I'd say the other half, not really. You know, I think, I, I think I'm pretty typical as an actor that way. Yeah. Yeah. Do you watch? I mean, you, you watch this film, oh, but sure. do you watch the things that you're in? Oh, sure. Because yeah. I want to see how I did. Mm -hmm. But the worst experience for, for me as an actor is doing ADR. Yeah. Now, ADR is additional dialogue record right so you go into the studio well you know all about it because you're in the business anyway you go in and you see yourself on a very big screen and there's no music and the lighting is still probably not quite <laughs> the way they want it and i every time i walk around i said i'm getting a facelift damn it i can't take it any longer 
I'm done. I'm going under the knife. And then I never do. <laughs> she is great. That was half actor, half human being, Jane Eastwood. See her in Jump Darling, which you can find on VOD right now, starring opposite Cloris Leachman. And if you want to see another side of what she can do, check out Hey Lady. She plays an older woman navigating the challenges that come with aging. It's hilarious. Uh, she is maybe the most crotchety old person on television right now. You'll find that at CBC Gem. Uh, in this segment, I'm going to introduce you to Andrew Lawson. He is one of the lead animators on the brand new Disney movie called Reyna and the Last Dragon. Set in the realm known as Commandra, it's like a reimagined Earth inhabited by an ancient civilization. A warrior named Reyna is determined to find the last dragon. Now, this movie was partially made during the pandemic, so I began by asking, what's it like working during a pandemic on such a huge production? We started making the movie uh, actually in the studio uh, as normal, um, but then when the uh, pandemic hit, we quickly shifted into a uh, work-at-home format. So it's been a kind of a learn-as-we-go process. Yeah. How does that work on a film that is as big as this, 450 people working on it? It's a new experience, and I can only imagine a very expensive experiment. Uh, tell me about some of the, the learning curves of having to, to adapt to the pandemic way of working. I mean, it was a Herculean task for sure, and uh, huge kudos have to go to the tech uh, workers that got it set up so quickly. There was barely a hiccup um, with our process. Um, so they're the true heroes of this. Um, but for us on the art side, um, a few of us had, uh, capability of being able to work at home, uh, for various reasons. Um, and it was really adapting that, uh, networking system, but for everyone on the show to be able to have, uh, access, um, to, you know, to our to our work um, mm -hmm. in the studio, um, and then it was really just about how we do meetings, um, how we do dailies and art reviews. Um, so uh, everyone kind of got used to this sort of format where we're talking over Zoom for uh, department meetings, um, and then uh, for rounds and dailies, uh, being able to chat to our supervisors and other animators like this. Uh, it was a a learning curve, but uh, we're a pretty tight knit team. So, you know, it was okay. So moving forward, this is a question that a lot of people have. Mm -hmm. Will we ever be sitting side by side again in an office or in your case, perhaps a studio or, or mm -hmm. wherever it is that you work? There's uh, something, uh, maybe not key, but is, is a huge advantage to having that almost that immediacy of being able to get feedback. Um, I uh, sit in an office uh, normally <laughs> with um, with three other people, and it's great to be able to lean over my shoulder and just get someone's eyes on something quickly. If I have an idea, if I've been looking at something too long, and have that instant feedback, um, and we we can still get that, uh, but yeah, it's not that instantaneous. Um, I think for me. The bigger deal was just the camaraderie that we get, mm -hmm. the feeling of, of like kind of a collective process that you you just, I don't know, it's, it's kind of an instinctual thing that when you're in the building with people, you see everyone every day, you don't have to actually set up a meeting to see them. They're there, you bump into right. them in the hallways, you talk about things, and there's more of a, that collective 
uh, vibe that I feel that's the one thing that I, I miss the most working from home. It's not just, it's just seeing people, seeing the artwork on the walls, mm -hmm. seeing what people are working on on their computers as you walk by and just that environment that you're in that, you know, you really feel and you kind of um, suck it up. And that, that was kind of missing. So I'll sign you up for going back into the office once it's safe, once everything's okay. You're gonna, you're one of the ones that actually wants to go back. Yeah, I definitely would like to go back. I like seeing people. I miss the people as well, because um, mm -hmm. as I said, it's like you you see people that you have meetings with and you have uh, you know dailies with, but it's the other people in the studio that might not be in your department right. that you see in the kitchen or you see in the hallways that you know, and I, you know, I just. I missed that. You're listening to my interview with Andrew Lawson, one of the animators on the new Disney Plus film, Reina and the Last Dragon. Tell me a little bit about animating these big fight scenes that are in the film. Uh, do you, at some point, and maybe it's different because of the pandemic, but I know that often animators will will use live action models to get a good sense of, of movement and what's possible and what's not and that sort of thing. Minus that out of the equation, um, or maybe maybe you were able to do that. I don't know, but uh, you tell me. But how do you uh, choreograph these these big fight scenes? I mean, there are some some amazing shots and movement in here uh, that I was really impressed by. Yeah, well, we uh, we had a few fight choreographers that helped us uh, earlier on. Um, we definitely brought uh, you know consults in to show us the different styles of martial arts that we were going to be using to introduce us to the types of weapons, mm -hmm. uh, to familiarize us with like, you know, how things are held, how things work. Um, and then we actually did have uh, choreographers help uh, choreograph some of the scenes. And that was done more to the story level so that, you know, we can figure out how the, you know, shots are gonna be shot and where people are gonna be. And then the animators would take that kind of as reference. So to help us with how it's gonna be, um, how it's going to be you know filmed and then how we're going to animate it so it was kind of something that's been there from the beginning uh, and i'm by the beginning i mean you know a year before we even you know left the studio so it's been something that we've been paying attention to for quite a while now let's catch you up my name is raya our lands have been at war for as long as we can remember our people never see eye to eye my daughter, I believe our people can come together again, but someone has to take the first step. Now, in order to restore peace, we must find the last dragon. I wish to join this fellowship of butt kickery. How do you maintain your enthusiasm for a project over the course of years? And, you know, I always think of animation and computer animation is different than cell animation, hand-drawn animation, but it's still very meticulous. It's a little bit at a time. You're working uh, towards this, this big thing, but it takes years. How do you really stay enthusiastic over that amount of time? Yeah, uh, well, that's, I mean, definitely that's a harder uh, ask for the showrunners that are on a project for the duration. Uh, speaking for myself as an animator, um, you know, I'm usually only on a project for 12 to 18 months. Um, so I hear about projects that are coming up in the studio and that will usually get my, pique my interest because you hear little, you know, bits and pieces of the story, but they're constantly changing the story before it's ready to come into production. So 
quite often it's the unknown. There's still a little bit of a mystery as to exactly what you're going to be working on. You might have an idea of the, the general nature of the story, um, but by the time it's starting production, when I would actually jump onto a show, it's fairly firm. Um, and at that point, you know, it's, you're, you're still learning about it. Uh, so I think for me, it, it's, it's something that you kind of hear about and you get to learn. It kind of trickles out the information because they're actually creating the movie mm -hmm. uh, as it's getting closer to production. So I don't know. It, it's, it's fairly easy for me, especially if it's an idea that I think is, is going to be really enjoyable, but it's also that what is it going to be? Because by the time it gets to us, it's now our turn to add to the ideas. So it's also, what is it? And then how are we going to push it to the next level? What are, what is our department going to do to improve the idea to plus the whole idea? And then once we're finished, it's seeing how lighting and the effects will then plus what we've done. And so it's always, there's always something new to keep you interested, I guess. So and I imagine that the research that must go into this, uh, other than the fight scenes, uh, mm. this is set in Southeast Asia. So you have to be culturally sensitive to uh, the costumes and whatever else there might be. What kind of research goes into that? Is that something that you do or is that something that is done uh, in the process leading up to the point at which you get involved? Yeah, well, uh, so the movie is actually set in Kumandra, which is a mystical universe, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but it definitely has influences uh, from our universe in it. Uh, but yes, you're right, absolutely. And that there needs to be a lot of uh, attention paid to doing things correct. Mm -hmm. um, and definitely we have multiple uh, consultants that come on from multiple different countries and cultures. Good to have people that are uh, extremely knowledgeable about both come and tell you, hey, look, this is what you need to know. This is what you need to pay attention to. And uh, it's great because you learn quite a bit about things that you otherwise probably wouldn't have thought about researching. That was Andrew Lawson. Reina and the Last Dragon is on Disney Plus right now. Now, if you're a comic book fan, you will know the name Josh Blaylock. He's a veteran comic book publisher, creator, and retro brand revitalizer. He brought back the iconic G.I. Joe franchise in comic books, authored the graphic novel thriller Operation Nemesis, authored and illustrated the Bitcoin comic handbook, and his nonfiction book, How to Self-Publish Comics, Not Just Create Them, is required reading at the Savannah College of Art and Design. He's also now one of the driving forces behind Pop Cultivator, a studio created to incubate and develop new comic book concepts. Their mission is to create a library of diverse comic content whereby fans can share in the rewards by owning a small piece of the company. We'll get to that in a few minutes. First, we have big Canadian news from the United States. Josh Blaylock's Chicago-based company will debut the Canadian comedy heroes The Trailer Park Boys in a variety of comic books and specials. There'll be a series. Josh will tell us all about it in just a sec. First, let's hear a taste of The Trailer Park Boys and their version of a sea shanty. There once was a cat with a hungry belly The name of the cat was Whiskers Jelly His throat was dry and his bow was bare Meow, me furry cats, meow Soon may the kittyman come With birds and mice and some tasty nums One day when the craters come We'll eat till our bellies are full Josh Blaylock well, joins me from Chicago On my, so my publishing company side, Devils Do Comics um, We just got the 
comic book license as part of the 20th anniversary for Trailer Park Boys. And that show has really become a phenomenon with a whole new generation of people through through streaming and binging. Anybody, any, mostly, you know, mostly young guys, 20 mm. to 35 are all new Trailer Park Boys. <laughs> I, um, I, I hosted, uh, I don't man, it was a long time ago, like maybe 15 years ago. Uh, when they were, we thought, just kind of a Canadian phenomenon. And I hosted an event with them where I was going to interview them on stage. And we did it at a, at a big theater down here. Seats about 900 people. And I came with the guys. And as we pulled in, we realized that we couldn't walk through the front door. We were going to have to go around the back, which we had not planned, because there were probably sixteen or 1,700 people trying to get into a theater wow. that only seated about nine. And... On top of that, uh, there were license plates from uh, the U.S., from other provinces, from all over the place that, had, that people had driven to see this. And it was honestly one of the rowdiest, <laughs> crazy oh, yeah. Q&As oh, that I've ever done. Everybody's drunk. Uh, all you could hear was like clinking bottles and people laughing. And it was it was an, an absolutely unbelievable night, but completely beyond what any of us had expected it was going to be. I know they, they sold out Chicago theater here. Um, I mean, that, I've been there for several shows. It's holds thousands of people. It's, um, it's, uh, that's, I mean, obviously that's what we saw from the, the company standpoint besides yeah. the just fun aspect is it's a huge underground phenomenon. And so we're, we're doing a, these special edition comics oh, cool. that we're launching with that are going to have a variety of artists and writers on board. So we have an opportunity in a format that lets us bring in, known creators who are fans of the show we can tell all kinds of stories and then uh we'll, we're going to launch with those and then we'll sort of see where it goes from there and, and, and like the best way to proceed but we plan on doing a lot of it this is just the first wave for the 20th anniversary Let's talk about Pop Cultivator. What makes Pop Cultivator different uh, from other studios that are currently producing uh, comic books? Um, Pop Cultivator is something I created that is truly native uh, to all this disruption. Um, you know, I've been publishing comics for 20 years with my uh, publishing company, Devil's Do Comics. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a, but I'm also, I'm a writer and an artist. And I sort of years and years and years ago got it and, you know, started my own publishing company out of necessity and it grew into a real thing. Um, but um, there's, there's been a lot of rapid changes happening in the industry and it's been expanding and, and new people have been coming into it. But then with, and there's been a lot of, you know, technological changes to things and how things are done and Kickstarter was becoming a, a much bigger part of the, the way that creators got their content to fans. And I've uh, now with, with COVID that sort of just really accelerated all this stuff and creators now have more options than ever before to bypass publishers mm -hmm. and to get their books into the hands of fans and cultivate their own following publishers um, still have never been doing better and they've never had such a, a variety of options to with choose Pop from Cultivator how many are coming in. Josh Pop Cultivator is a comic book You're studio. You're listening to my interview with Pop Cultivator. That is, uh, You're listening to my interview with Pop Cultivator co-founder Josh Blaylock. Uh, through equity crowdfunding on, on WeFunder. And it's, it's basically, it's this crack team of experts in the industry who have all started businesses or worked in, in the field and know how to 
create and ship product from scratch. And we're solving the problem the creator has of, you know what, I don't need a publisher as a gatekeeper like I used to, but I do still need, you know, I've got all these negotiations I have to deal with. I need to make sure I'm getting the right kind of deal with the publisher, make sure the publisher is doing the right, the right deal with uh, the, you know, me, other media companies. And we know how to do all that and we're not beholden to any publisher. Um, meanwhile, we really, we can fund the creators. We can make sure the projects are done and ready to hand off with everything, all our T's crossed and I's dotted, you know, creatively and, you know, uh, on an efficiency level and, and legally and everything to hand off to a publisher. So we're what they're looking for too. Um, and it's, you know, it's not like a, a just a, a fund coming in who wants to throw some money into a publishing company. Yeah. Know, and it's not understand. just, and it's not self-publishing either, which is the idea that I can write a book or, or uh, draw a, a, a graphic novel and then publish it myself and hopefully sell it on Amazon. This is a different thing than that, again, right? Because you have a layer in between the artist, the beginner artist, and the publishers. And that is you with the expertise that you bring to the game. We're in, yeah, we are an incubator and a sort of a, an incubator and a manager and a bank mm. um, in a way to, to, the, to support the medium. Yeah. Because the medium now has uh, so many different outlets to go. Uh, for some some comics, uh, the best course of action to take is to go uh, through the traditional publishing route through the comic book stores. Others are absolutely going to need to be in the bookstores. Um, others really have the, the smartest thing to do is to just build their content online, and then eventually find you know their their physical forms later and. All of this stuff takes time, uh, especially you know the way the lot of the way a lot of original comics are created are not by the top down from the companies. They're by sort of like when people get a band together, they get their friends together, they start creating, and then they go they go try to get signed. That's how a lot of comics are formed. Uh, and just like in music, you can make the decision: do you want to sign or do you want to go around and tour and sell your own, you know, stuff. Uh, comics artists are are having these options too. So we just are really we're there to say, look, we we can do on a case by case basis what needs to happen, and, and f help form that plan over the next couple of years. And it will be Make different sure each time. Yeah, and for the fans though, there's still you're we're the, it always comes back to that comic book content. So if we're creating content in that medium, regardless of genre, regardless of you know sales channels at, at first, uh, as long as it works, that's that's what we care about. And unlike so I say, you know, a hedge fund throwing some money in, or, or, or I mean, a VC fund throwing some money yeah. in as an investment, or, or uh, a film studio or something. We've got these fans here who are our checks and balance. So if we start getting tempted, you know, let's say I'm gone and, you know, 10 years from now, someone's tempted to change those deals around, you know, on the creative side or, or enter, you know, certain types of media deals that are a little short-sighted, you know, whatever we've got all these sincere investor fans. They're going to speak up about that. And, and um, keep, keep everybody honest. People keep asking me why we're doing it. I'm like, I, why we're we doing it this way. I'm like, how could you not? It just, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
that, you know, I'm sure we're not going to be the last. Find out more about Pop Cultivator, the studio Josh Blaylock created to incubate and develop new comic book concepts at wefunder.com. Greg Mason, Vice President of Marketing at the Walt Disney Studios, is here to tell us all about Star. It's an add-on to your Disney Plus account that will bring thousands of movies and television shows to your fingertips. Star is our new general entertainment content uh, being offered on the existing Disney Plus platform. It is a new tile uh, next to our other five brands that is going to uh, close to double the amount of content on Disney Plus in Canada. There are some parental guides uh, to make sure that nine-year-olds aren't going to be able to uh, tune in and watch Deadpool, for instance, because uh, there is some more mature content on this. Is that what differentiates it really from the other brands that you have? Well, you're absolutely right. We had to have parental controls that are second to none. So when Star initially launches... Um, only the account holder with password will be able to uh, actually set ratings for their family. And so if you've got little Johnny who you do not want to see certain content, you can set the age range for Johnny and you can set it differently for somebody who is over 18. Um, so that way, the titles that will appear are only the ones in the ratings that you choose to put on. And what kind of shows will be featured? Well, we're really excited to be able to bring really the rest of the, the creative juices from our company. So things like from the FX catalog, ABC television, uh, Touchstone, uh, 20th century films and series. So there's a whole host of, of things from our classic library titles like Little Miss Sunshine and uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, Alien, Die Hard. All things being equal, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. Uh, to series like 24 and Scrubs and Homeland. And then there are originals as well, I understand. There are originals. So we kick off with two originals. We kick off with Solar Opposites, uh, which is uh, an animated comedy. These genius aliens are smarter than any man. Who knows what game of chess they're playing with us Oh, don't throw that out. I can sell it. It has an unstable gray hole inside. You're an unstable gray hole. <laughs> Love nice. Victor, which is um, you know the highly anticipated series uh, that spins off of uh, Love, Simon. Dear Simon, you don't know me, but my family just moved to Atlanta. I was excited to start over. I thought I'd finally get the chance to be myself, or at least figure out who that even is. And those will be available at launch. And then we have other titles coming. What I'm particularly excited about is Only Murders in the Building with Martin Short, Steve Martin, and Selena Gomez. Uh, one heck of a great combination. The premise is that you take one of those fabulous buildings in New York, those classic apartment buildings, and you, 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 you meet three different people who don't know each other. They just kind of get on the elevator and nod to each other, hello. And then they, you see them go to their individual uh, apartments and then they just watch true crime. That's all they do, they're obsessed. And then there's a murder uh, in the building and we, the three of us, throughout a season, set out to figure out who did it. But we decide because Steve and I are old, we will only solve murders that actually happen in the building. If they're outside the <laughs> building, we don't care. So lots of originals coming too to keep uh, things fresh. Do you think that during the pandemic, one of the things that is drawing people to some of this older content, you mentioned 24 and shows like that, uh, is that there's a sense of nostalgia to them where things are turned upside down in the world, but by watching some of these older shows, it kind of makes us feel a little better? 
I think you're right. I think we all want to escape. And this is such a great opportunity to escape. And it, it's it's fun to kind of look back on some old series and, and movies and, and brighter times and, and great memories. You're listening to my interview with Greg Mason, Vice President of Marketing at the Walt Disney Studios. Disney Plus has an enormous amount of content on it already. So you add Star, you're saying that it's doubling the content. How many titles are on this? Uh, it is thousands of titles. It's, it's hundreds of movies and thousands of, of episodes from series. So, um, and it just keeps growing. And, you know, there's there's some other really neat opportunities that come with it, Richard. Things like Nomadland is a film that we have been really trying to get released during these COVID times. And it's been very difficult. And now we're able to release this on Star on April 9th. Um, so that Canadians can finally see this. So this opens up a whole new host of opportunities to be able to, to bring new content forward. Yeah, I think Frances McDormand is pretty much a lock for best actress here as well for Nomadland. We're, we're hoping, we think she did a really terrific job in that film, and I'm, I'm excited that Canadians can finally see it uh, through Star. You are one of those lucky people that can travel anywhere. Yes, ma'am. And they sometimes call you nomads. My mom said that you're homeless. Is that true? No, I'm not homeless. I'm just houseless. Not the same thing, right? No. So why has Disney bet so big on streaming? We looked at where the world was, was changing and turning, and it, it just seemed that this was the right time. And we're very fortunate. We have really strong uh, brands and you know, architects of our brands like Kevin Feige on the Marvel side, where to have a home for the Marvel Cinematic Universe makes absolute sense. Well, when Disney Plus launched, they hoped to get 60 to 90 million subscriptions by 2024. Uh, that happened faster than expected. I mean, it happened almost immediately. Uh, now they're saying that they're hoping to have 230 to 260 million subscribers uh, by 2024. What do you think it is? What is the key here that's made Disney Plus so popular? I, I think that why Disney Plus has been so successful, quite honestly, is the quality. I think, you know, we've been talking a bit about quantity in this interview, but I think the quality is there. We're, we're very proud of the content we have, and we have populated Disney Plus with some really strong quality offerings for people. So uh, you know what you're going to watch, and, and what you're picking is, a, is of a high caliber quality. And I think that that is incredibly important uh, to our brand. Other than Nomadland, what are you most looking forward to seeing? Uh, I'm very much looking forward to Only Murders in the Building and um, uh, Dope Sick as well uh, with Rosario Dawson, Michael Keaton, Will Chase, uh, you know, is another one that we're looking forward to. And there's a few other surprises coming uh, that uh, we'll be announcing soon, but uh, lots to come, Richard. Are these shows uh, shooting now with the pandemic? It's difficult to shoot things. People are, but are the are the shows being shot now or have they been shot or, or is this something that we're looking forward to in the future? Um, well, there's it's a blend, quite honestly. We have shot some and there are others still to be shot, uh, but um, they're looking at the pipeline. It's a very full pipeline between now and the, and the end of the year, not just on Star, but on Disney+. Plus. We've got... Falcon and the Winter Soldier coming in March, which is outstanding. What's going on in that cyborg brain of yours? You don't want to know. Oh, yeah, I can see it working. Gears turning. Oh, they're malfunctioning. They're on fire. God, I hate you. And, you know, just as that wraps up, we go into Loki. 
So we've got, you know, something for the Marvel fans. You're taking me somewhere to kill me. No, I'm taking you someplace to talk. Where I lie, I don't like to talk. But you do like to lie, which you just did. Because we both know you love to talk. Talky, talky. How long have you been here? I don't know, it's hard to say. You know, time passes differently here in the TVA. What does that mean? You'll catch up. We have Ryan the Last Dragon, which is our next animated uh, coming out as well. So the, the library is is full and uh, it's getting interesting more and more month by month. We're we're pretty jazzed about it. And I guess the big question here, is, is there an extra charge? Does it cost more to have Star on your Disney Plus app? It does. If you're an existing subscriber, you will continue to pay the same rates right through till August. So it will go up $3 a month. Uh, or $30 for the year. So it goes from $89.99 to $119.99 uh, for a year subscription. That was Greg Mason. Find out all about Star at Disney.com. My thanks to Greg. Jane Eastwood of Jump Darling, now on VOD. Rhea and the Last Dragon animator Andrew Lawson. And Pop Cultivator's Josh Blaylock. My biggest thanks, of course, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe. And we'll talk again soon.